You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's guest speaker, we have Nick Cobb, senior software engineer at Aurora and an angel investor. And in this episode, we'll talk about angel investing and why frequently operator angels join syndicates versus investing by themselves or joining VC funds and how this can be useful to startup founders. So Nick, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on your position at Aurora. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for having me. I'm a senior manager of uh, infrastructure and developer experience. So I work on stuff like cloud data center and you know data infrastructure uh, storage and things like that. Um, our team basically manages the platforms that facilitate all the developers to build the self-driving car and work on things like simulation and maps. Um, I have a systems and IT background and previously done desktop support. I've worked on mobile CI and CD and supported a ton of uh, mobile app release and operations for, for Uber for many years. So um, yeah, that's kind of my background. Nice. Very brief. I like it. So uh, first question is, uh, on our pre-interview call, we've discussed the Uber Aurora acquisition. I already forgot which acquired which. I believe it's Aurora acquired the Uber yep. and that was developing self-driving cars, right? Could you tell That's us correct, a little more yeah. about that? Yeah. So uh, Aurora acquired Uber ATG um, and you know the, a lot of the, the teams have been moving over and just going through the transitional steps of getting uh, you know all the software integrated. So um, we're excited to be a part of the Aurora team and uh, they've got some interesting, you know, goals around truck and and bringing uh, a truck product to market. So we're really looking forward to uh, to working on that. Nice truck truck driving. Uh, you mean the the project that uh, will basically deliver deliver all the goods in those big trucks, right? That that's the project you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. There was uh, just a partnership with Picar announced, uh, where where we're partnering with Picar to sort of uh, do this, you know, long haul uh, autonomous, you know, trucking. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Nice. That's real cool. That's something I'm actually personally very much looking forward to. When can people expect to see that coming? By the way, if it's not super confidential, uh, I'm not sure I can share the exact timelines, but I would say that you'll definitely see continuous, you know, updates over the next uh, year or so. So. Nice. I'm just looking forward to seeing those shiny trucks on the streets instead of the, the loud more things that we're seeing up right now. Anyhow, let's move on to talking about individual investing and your angel investment specifically. So what do you like to invest in as an angel investor? Yeah, so um, I, I, I'm only in my second year of investing. Uh, so I've primarily been focused on companies that are raising early stage rounds and, and are post revenue. Uh, I typically look to engage in an investment when there's strong evidence of product market or founder market fit. Um, and these investments for now are all through syndicates, but I have a few companies where I have relationships with the founders and will likely make a direct investment. Nice. So syndicate investing is our major topic of discussion for today. So let's talk a little bit more about that. So from my personal experience, it seems like most operator angels, as I call people like yourself, so you know, who keep the full-time job, some uh, company and uh, as a part-time job, they do angel investment. So those people mainly invest through syndicates. Can you tell us a little bit more? Why do you choose syndicates? I mean, investing through syndicates instead of investing by yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I think like for me, um, I'm not very experienced and I'm still building my my network of, of folks. You know, a lot of folks that I worked with at Uber have gone on to, to, to build some awesome companies. And so 
um, you know, I want to be I want to be a valuable investor to the to the companies that, that I'm working with. And I think that my value increases when I when I'm a part of a syndicate and part of a, a large group of people that can can really help, you know, portfolio companies of, of the syndicate. Um, in terms of like, you know, the syndicate process and, and you know, just like choosing it, I think that um, it, it allows you to make smaller sort of investments than you probably would when you when you talk to a founder or talk to a team directly. Um, so you can kind of learn, you know, you can spend your first few years learning, not necessarily, you know, investing larger sums of money in individual companies. You can invest smaller sums of money in multiple companies uh, as the syndicate sort of provides deal flow. And so um, it sort of de-risks the opportunity to learn more about the, the sort of venture and angel investing space. Absolutely. And that's why I love syndicates so much. By the way, just recently we recorded an episode about a, actually two episodes about uh, people who run syndicates. So if you're curious about that, definitely take a look at our website and those episodes will be there. But from an investor perspective, how does it look like for you? So a syndicate manager finds a bunch of nice deals and then what happens? Yeah, there's actually a lot of literature about how to get started as, as an angel investor. I think personally for me, the best resource is uh, Jason Calacanis's book called Angel. Um, so definitely check that out. Uh, it, it is a good primer for how to actually start a career as an angel investor. So if you're, if you're only trying to get into syndicate investing, there's a ton of information there. Like Jason wrote the book for people who want to be full-time angels. Um, I have a blog post kind of in my backlog, my personal backlog to write about my learnings against some of the book's content since it was written in 2017. Um, and, and sort of the, the tools and markets really change regularly. So in general, I would say the first thing I, I would say is to, I recommend that you read this book and, and kind of get started in syndicates that way. Um, there's a ton of syndicate style platforms available. So the one I prefer is AngelList. Um, Folks that are that are listening probably have heard of it, and it, and it remains kind of the most popular platform for syndicate investing today. I think largely because the number of the syndicates, the quality of the deals and the leads uh, on the on the platform. Uh, there's a lot of people who've been doing it. Um, there's some again, there's some, like some great leads there. They've had large exits. They've they they've got more than five years experience, and that's typically what you want to look for in in a syndicate lead. Um, there are also a few you know mediocre ones, but you know, my experience has been that it can take some time to understand which which ones are good and bad. And a lot of that's based on, you know, the deal flow that, that you look at. You start to sort of evaluate companies and understand, you know, what the, the things are that you want to look for. Um, I recommend joining more than four syndicates. I think there's some recommendations to join, you know, 10 or more. And I think that um, what I've seen is that there's deal flow that sort of crosses those syndicates. Some of the leads will share things. And so you typically don't you know, miss anything uh, relevant that you're interested in by staying in, you know, a smaller number of them. And it can kind of, kind of gets uh, unmanageable to, to some degree if you're in a lot. Um, when you invest in a syndicate, you, re you request to become a member and you typically give the lead some brief info about yourself and how you can add value to the group. Um, and once you're accepted, you can review any of the open deals that the syndicates offered. Um, which is sort of shared through through like a deal invite, which is a web page of, of information about the raise and the company. Um, the info that's shared is it, it'll include things like round type and size, allocation, fees, and some information on expected minimum. Um, it also will include what's called a deal memo, which is just a write up of important information about the company that the lead deems relevant. Um, and sometimes, you know, some of the leads are really investing in very future facing companies. So there, there's also, you know, some 
pontificating about where you know a particular industry might be headed in the next few years mm -hmm. and why this is an important you know kind of early bet on it on an interesting team or company um so once you have the deal invite you can make a decision to invest based on the information provided and you typically you know are encouraged to do your own diligence um you know do research on the company um, which i can talk more about how i do that but uh um, if you decide, you know, in the affirmative that you want to invest, you typically send money to to what's called a special purpose vehicle, um, which is just a, an invest an investment instrument that's set up, um, and uh, you you would typically do that from wire or bank transfer, um, and that's you know you set those things up initially when you when you join the Angelus platform. Mm -hmm. Right. That's actually I would love to jump deeper into how you research the companies that you seem to like based on this, you know, short description and investment memo. So let's say you like the company, you see the major, you know, some major facts there, bullet points. What's your next step? Yeah. So, so for me, I'll typically go out and like search uh, a couple of members of the founding team and see what their past experience was and see if it's relevant to, to the idea they're working on now. Sometimes you get folks who have worked in fintech for a really long time and they're working on a new, you know, fintech, fintech startup. Um, sometimes you get folks who have had an exit in the past, meaning that their their previous startup or company was sold uh, or, or acquired or, or they went public um, and, and sort of, you know, had an outsized uh, uh, return for investors, which is also, you know, kind of a positive signal. Um, but I do other stuff, too. I, I try to search over, you know. Uh, social media and and various other sort of platforms to see if the information that the company is sort of providing is is representing itself in in an accurate way. First of all, and I you know I mostly trust a, a lot of the companies that are out there, but there are you know a few cases where where there's some fraud going on. So you want to protect against that you know as as much as you can. But because the the companies are so early, there's typically not a lot of information to go off of, and so. In the deal memo, you'll typically get the lead writing up something about the industry or the the, the sort of uh, paradigm around why they kind of came up with this idea. And so when you read these deal memos, something important is to kind of understand the background of the company and how they sort of arrived at this idea and kind of ask yourself, why are they doing this? Um, and then, you know, go out and, and, you know, jump on the search engines and start start to find out as much as you can about the nuances of, you know, why somebody would be interested in this. Um, and it's it's typically... You know the the same hopefully you know to some degree common sense diligence that you would do before you put money into a public stock right you're looking mm -hmm. at metrics um that that are available to you if you have them those are typically provided by the by the deal lead so has the company had you know six months of revenue growth have they had six months of user growth is their product in market or not is it just an idea or not you know and and if it's just an idea how large is the potential space that they're moving into and how long is it going to take them to get product in market so these are all things that i kind of think about diligence kind of internalize a little bit before i decide to make an investment mm -hmm. so what are the key factors for you when you're reviewing those companies so you know when you just take a first look at the investment memo that's made by the <coughs> sorry syndicate leads what are the major three points that you're looking at yeah, so I, I typically will invest in, I, I don't typically invest in solo founder teams. I think there's a higher risk that, uh, you know, being a founder, mm -hmm. so I think that that um, there's a higher risk that uh, a solo founder company, you know, could go out of business or, or could have, you know, some some issues at some, some point and, and be difficult to overcome. Um, that's not always the case, but, but it sometimes is. And so that's something that I look at. Um, I typically check to see if their products in market and to what degree like their users are are responding to to that. So if they have an app in the app store, 
try to go scroll through the reviews and look at you know how users are sort of commenting about features of the product or things that they like or dislike. Um, I'll take a look at social media if it's like more of a lifestyle company. So sometimes you get companies uh, like uh, like shoes or you know stuff like this um, uh, that that have a social media presence and, and sort of require rely on some level of influencing to kind of get their name out. And so take a look at their followers. You know, do the followers seem legitimate? Are the followers, you know, like sharing the product on a regular basis? And so what's the organic sort of amount of, of those things going out on social? Um, and then I also look at, you know, the location of the team, which has actually become a little, a lot less relevant in the last year, year and a half um, because of the, the, you know, remote only and people just sort of starting to, to found companies in other places in, in the U.S. that are outside of Silicon Valley. Um, I typically see lifestyle companies get started in New York and LA a lot. And so that's kind of another signal for me that, you know, they're in the right market and they're, they're focused on kind of the right demographic for their, you know, product in certain cases. Mm -hmm. um, I'll also look uh, at the terms of the deal. So um, is the company raising money to sort of arrive at somewhere between 12 and 18 months of runway, right? Are, are they going to be able to use the capital efficiently? enough to, to sort of sustain the business for, for at least a year, year and a half or more. Um, 18 months is really attractive. 12 months is, you know, good, but it means that they're going to be raising money again uh, in the next few months because they've got to start that process all over again, you know, as soon as this round closes and, and those rounds take a couple of months to close. Um, so I look at the, the runway. I also look at um, just generally uh, the, um, the terms of the deal and whether or not pro rata is included, which is not typically included for, for small investors. I've seen a lot more deals with pro rata included in the past year because the syndicates are getting uh, pretty large. I think high net worth individuals are seeking out, you know, other mm -hmm. alternative investments than just public markets. And um, there's a there's an interesting kind of uh, article. I think Zach Colias wrote this on Twitter, but he was talking about um, early stage startup investing as at investing as a pr protection against inflation. And so I think a lot of folks are starting to move, you know, their assets into, into sort of the venture category um, and the syndicates are getting pretty large. So you start to see that the syndicate lead has a lot more to bargain with at the company in terms of bringing value over time. And so, so founders are typically allowed to, you know, allowing them to, to reserve pro rata, which is good. Um, and yeah, I, I, uh, I also look at like what other investors are, are investing in the company, you know, um, for an early stage company that has, you know, strong revenue growth and strong metrics and good product feedback and really engaged users, you'll typically see large institutional VC firms like interested or starting to make small bets on the, on the team. Mm -hmm. And when those folks are involved, you know, it's uh, at the early stage, it's super interesting because they see an opportunity for, for really growing that. And those, th those teams are doing much more deep diligence, right? They're going to invest 500,000 or a million dollars. Uh, or even more, and so they're they're you know really putting a lot of diligence work of, of their resources behind that investment. So you know that um, it's a it's a strong signal that they believe that the team is a good fit and the product is doing well. So those are those are pretty much the things that I look for typically. Perfect. That's a great list of things that. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm losing my voice. Uh, <laughs> I continue losing my voice. It's too cold in Los Angeles. I'm not used to that. So <clears throat> sorry. But yeah, that's a really good list. Uh, all those things are very, very important. Some of those, I didn't know, I, even I didn't know that, you know, uh, syndicate LPs were paying attention to, such as Runway. I was, 
always 100% sure no one cares about how much runway the company has. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so thank yeah. you for pointing that out. Great list. Absolutely love it. So uh, let's move on to the next question. And that's the question about uh, being a, an advisor for a company. So you mentioned on our printer call, you mentioned that you were an advisor to a few startups. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? How did that happen? How did the founders reach out to you? And what are you doing there as an advisor? Yeah, yeah, I can talk some about that. Um, so I started out in advising because I had worked on some very specific developer tools at a scale that not many people had really encountered. And those are particularly in, in iOS, like app development. And to be honest with you, I got lucky. I had a good manager and he was exposing me to hard problems. And so, you know, I got, I got, I got into some situations like at work where I learned a lot of lessons from failure and, and you know, from constantly having to rebuild certain systems uh, related to, to kind of iOS CI and iOS development. So um, these, these companies reached out to me, you know, after I had moved off uh, to, to the self-driving group and wasn't really doing some of that. And they were working on products or strategy in the same space and kind of wanted some help and wanted to understand my experience. Um, so I got started as an advisor with a, a company called Mac Stadium and a company called Virtu. Um, Mac Stadium is the largest Apple hardware data center provider in the world. Um, and they've got a great team of folks who are focused on making iOS developers super productive. And Virtu is a great company that works on virtualization technology for iOS developers as well. And both of these are kind of focused on the infrastructure side. Um, Virtu has a product called Anka, and they allow you to build virtual machines and sort of manage them like containers, which is very difficult to do in the Apple ecosystem. Um, so they're both iOS developer ecosystem companies, and I would classify them as maybe early to mid-stage startups. Um, and they both have an impressive customer uh, lists on their on their resume as well. So um, more recently, I've started working with um, some very early stage companies that have yet to raise any capital or sort of in pre-seed stage. And a few of these founders are, are really kind of still forming their strategy and their product vision and looking for wins on on getting ideas, you know, to, to MVP. Um, I really enjoy working with these folks because they're super smart and I want to see them succeed. Uh, typically, we talk about, you know, strategy and product and, and we're kind of preparing them for their first raise and what what things they should really be focused on as they you know start to raise capital from investors. Um, and I'm also typically helping them just with anything else, uh, trying to be a good listener and sounding board and, you know, having them bounce ideas and see where things, you know, kind of go. And sometimes I'll even do technical research if they want to, you know, start to make changes to their platform, start to look at what tools are available to them and, and try to connect them with, you know, software engineers in my network who are looking to, to, to help uh, at an early stage. Um, I think the big thing is kind of listening and, and being supportive because I think being a founder can be lonely and I really enjoy helping people. So this is kind of the discovery I've had on, on this journey and um, I want to keep doing that. A couple of the folks I talked to, um, one is uh, Diamond over at uh, Pothos Beauty. She's, she's been working super hard on that. Um, and Melinda at, um, at Lessons Up. So those are two, two great uh, folks that I've been talking to more recently that, that I, I would have to insert as a plug there. <laughs> Got it. That's really cool. And question is how, so you you mentioned that, you know, you were talking to additional two companies, you're already working with two companies. How do those people reach out to you? Is it just cold outreach through LinkedIn? Are they managing to find some warm introductions to you or how do they manage to get in touch with you? Yeah. So the, the Max Stadium and Virtu, I, I sort of got through, through, uh, LinkedIn, but through also some cold reach out that was kind of trying to help us, you know, solve our problems at, at Uber at the time that I was working on those things. Um, you know, I met Diamond and Melinda through through uh, friends, you know, through my network. So those are folks that I've just, you know, 
been been lucky to work with uh, because they needed help and had asked you know folks that I knew. So I was happy to happy to help. Um, generally, folks can find me on LinkedIn though. My my LinkedIn profile is available. I I read every message. So yeah. Nice. That's real cool. I personally love LinkedIn. I always recommend founders try to reach out on LinkedIn, then on Twitter, then on email. And if that does not work, then probably should move on. But if you really need the introduction, you can probably find some kind of warm introduction, probably. So <laughs> there are just so many ways to, to get connected to people. And often I've seen people not doing that properly. So please take your time to connect to the people you need to get in touch with. It is very much doable. So now let's move on to talk a little bit more about what you touched on to recently, but we didn't really go in depth into it. So you mentioned that you know you were looking at the geography of the founders, but not as much recently because of the COVID. Uh, but you, on our printer call, you mentioned that you only invest in US-based companies. Why have you never thought of investing in outside of the US companies? Yeah, this is largely due to just my level of experience and kind of stage. I think like if there was a strong uh, conviction, like like a in a syndicate or or one of the deals that I saw in an international company, I would probably do it. Um, Changing my attitude a little bit on this, but the the main reason is because I'm starting out. I just want as few tax complications as possible, um, and that's really the main reason. Um, I have I have some awesome friends like in other countries doing doing really cool stuff, uh, and I, I really would love to be a part of their vision, but I'm just not willing to make the, the tax complication right now. And so that's that's kind of the thing. Um, but, you know, if an international founder was able to register their their business in the U.S., particularly as a Delaware C-Corp, and I've seen a lot of deals like that, then I know like folks like me who are U.S. sort of only investors or U.S. spoken investors will will find that compelling and, and definitely take a close look at it. So, um, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of my story on that, I guess. 100%. And yes, that's very accurate. And yes, there are tons of complications with the tax returns on these kind of investments. I have no idea how those are done, but <laughs> I read a few things on that and it sounds extremely, extremely complicated. So on this note, um, one more question actually about that <laughs> when I thought about it. So uh, roughly 30%, a little bit less than 30% of my listeners are based outside of the United States. <laughs> so for those people who are listening right now to this episode, what would you recommend them doing if they want to get in touch with U.S. investors, if they want to eventually raise money with the U.S. investors? Yeah, I think um, I think, you know, going going out and trying to find some some folks cold is always a, a struggle that that founders have. Um, so, like, you know, doing cold reach out and trying to get that raise. I think that there is there is a larger sort of has been a larger venture network emerging outside of the U.S. for 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 several years now, and so I think that. You know, those can be stepping stones to getting into large institutional investors in, in the U.S. if that's what your goal is. But I think the, the main thing is like build, you know, build your product. Revenue and growth is basically the thing that drives all of these kind of conversations. And when you have those metrics, you know, to share with somebody in a deck or a cold reach out, like they're going to really pay attention to those things. That's that's what investors look for. If you're growing and you're, and you're focused on your product and you're talking to your customers and solving their problems. Then I think the rest is going to be going to be fairly straightforward. Great. That's very accurate. I actually have, I just remembered a really cool story that depicts this uh, thing that you just said, which is I interviewed a Russian founder or previously Russian founder who started a company that was doing something with Twitter and they had like the number of their users was just escalating. Uh, and one of their users was a US-based investor and bam, he invested. And then 
the company was acquired and then he invested in their next company and now they're still friends you know even though he was doing cross-border investing uh, without even ever meeting the founders wow. so yes this is very much doable this is very real so yeah just keep focusing on users keep focusing on growth and eventually you'll get there and on this positive note we're moving on to the last question of today's episode which is a call to action so nick what do you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over yeah so i think the first thing is is uh start building I, like if you have an idea and you're not sure how to get started there's a ton of literature on on what you can build without software engineering skills particularly in the last year um for me like the more the more we can encourage folks to build the better off we're going to be and like founders create companies companies create jobs i, I think that helps everybody so um Personally, I'm always happy to help answer questions. Um, I'm not an, an SF native, San Francisco native, and folks have asked me about things like moving to the Bay Area, how to get their ideas started, uh -huh. engineering questions, hiring, any of that stuff. So yeah, just uh, if you need help and or, or you have something that you, know, you have a question about, feel free to reach out. Perfect. I'll make sure to leave links to Nick's LinkedIn in the description of this episode and maybe Twitter. I'll, I'll Nick later on after this episode to make sure which uh, way of contacting him has is the best and I'll leave that contact information in the description of this episode so yeah this is going to be my call to action go to the description of this episode Nick also mentioned a book by Jason Calcanis called Angel I'll make sure to include it in the description of this episode and also I think Nick mentioned something else but I forgot what it is. So we'll have to get back to this and see <laughs> what else I should include in the description of this episode. And as usually, have a good day.